All right, if you want to join me, let's go back to the book of Leviticus chapter 19 as we continue our study here through Leviticus together. And as we come to this section in the book of Leviticus now, we're kind of looking, as we said last time, in rather a practical light of what it means uh, to experience holiness. Uh, chapters 18 through the rest of the book, God now begins to deal with practical holiness in everyday life and how we, uh, serving a holy God, are to live responsively like Him as His children. Uh, we saw in chapter 18 God beginning to deal with this and how that relates to laws of uh, sexual morality and things that were forbidden that God's people were not to participate in, how they were to be separate uh, from the people of Egypt where they had come from as well as they were to be separate from the place to where they were going to. If you remember in chapter 18 God uh, declared this to them. He said, I am the Lord your God according to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt you shall not do and according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you you shall not do nor shall you walk in their ordinances so again as God's people they were not to embrace the standards of those in the world they were not to follow the customs and the practices of those who were pagan people that did not know Yahweh God as they did they were to live distinct and separate God said to them you shall therefore observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them for I am the Lord your God and the idea is in contrast to the ways of the world you know there is a law that our world lives by morally and ethically and, and in some senses even spiritually uh, that God says that's a way that the world does things but the ways of the Lord are higher than that they're different there's a there's a line of demarcation there's a distinction for those of us who follow the Lord whereby we make our decisions differently our convictions our standards are different because we are honoring uh, a, a God whom we serve and we're representing him and God's now beginning to deal with those things as he moves forward in these chapters and chapter 19 deals with again issues of practical holiness what does it look like to live for God in everyday life what well, affects God's going to say everything our relationships our our business practices our family life our our worship practices that it has an effect on every area and arena of our life a lot of times we want to segregate uh, what is holy to kind of maybe what we just do when we go to a place of worship or we have a a little private time alone with the Lord for 15 minutes or a half hour in the morning or something and and we want to divide life into secular and, and sacred and from from God's perspective God says no holiness living in a way that is wholesome and pleasing to me and set apart to me which is what the word holy means to be set apart to be sanctified or set apart uh, that affects every arena of life it should it should all be consecrated to God and we'll see that as God deals with all different spheres of life experience here in chapter 19 so he begins here chapter 19 verse 1 by saying the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak notice to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them here's the key and this is again as we said sort of been our theme for the book of Leviticus God says say to them remind them you shall be holy notice and here's the reason that we should seek to desire to live holy lives for I the Lord your God am holy so again you have to give and I think somewhat it makes sense a, a reason a basis for someone to want to live a holy life, to live separate and distinct from everyone else around them in the world and with the natural inclinations of our sinful flesh is going to motivate us towards, which is unholy living, ungodliness and immorality. That's our natural inclination. So there needs to be some motivator. What is a good reason to live holy? Is it just because you know I should be terrified and, and, and fearful? Is it because I should live a life of regulation? and rules well God says this is the reason this is a good high motivator for holy living God says you shall be holy for I the Lord your God am holy God says because I'm holy and because you belong to me I purchased you with a price I redeemed you out of Egypt God had purchased them and 
purchased them to himself to be his people. And more than that, because they were his people, God says, because you are my people, you represent me. And I, the Lord, your God, am holy. So therefore, if you're going to represent me, it's important that you live holy so that you can represent me in the land where you will be and among the people that you'll be with that were pagan and idolatrous in order to accurately represent God we need to seek to reflect him and since God is holy we should aspire to live holy for that very basis and reason and now he begins to give instruction what that looks like verse 3 he says every one of you notice shall revere his father or mother and keep my Sabbaths for I am the Lord your God. So God begins, notice right away, where does he start with? He starts in the family life. The first instruction he gives there, and you'll notice as we go through these, a lot of what we're looking at here is really just sort of a, um, an expansion of the Ten Commandments, which God had given to the people a while back now. Really, God is almost just expounding and giving commentary on some of these things. Uh, you'll notice a lot of uh, similarities, but he begins, first of all, by saying that practical holiness will demonstrate itself, first of all, in the family life. Particularly, he says, that there should be a reverence, the idea is a respect a appreciation, a reverence for mother and father. Uh, God says, you shall honor thy father and mother. Well, here he says, you shall revere mother and father. The point being, as God says, respect for parental authority. That every child should have a healthy respect for parental authority. And, and that begins... In the home life, you know, any young person who wants to seek to live a holy life and honor God, uh, certainly if they're still in the place where they're living in the boundaries of their home, where their parents are providing for them and there's still an aspect of that covering and the raising process until they're independent and on their own, uh, certainly cannot accurately represent the Lord and be in right relationship with the Lord if they're in disrespect and irreverent and rebellious towards their parents because that is a God-ordained authority that he's established in the home life. Uh, and really, it is the greatest step towards learning how to have proper reverence for the authority of God in one's life. The greatest thing we can do as parents to prepare our children to revere God and to have a, a sense of submission to the authority of God over their lives is to properly, in a healthy way, exercise our God-given authority as parents within the home and to teach them to understand that and to be re responsive to that and to value that. So there is to be a respect for parental authority that contributes to a healthy family life. And notice, secondly, he says in verse 3 also, not only to have a, a, a respect for parental authority, but also he speaks of participation in regular worship as well. He says, and you shall also keep my Sabbaths. We've seen this mentioned many times, that set-apart day that God gave where they were to detach from their regular activities, their work, their everyday responsibilities of trying to make ends meet and survival, that there was a day that God had set apart where they were to detach from that, where they could give their complete attention to God and to worship and to the things of their spiritual life that they might as well stay spiritually healthy. And God says here there was to be participation in regular worship. And I find it interesting, I don't know about you in verse 3, how notice worship of God and healthy family life are connected together. Uh, that's certainly purposeful there. That God says that there is to be respect for parental authority, in other words, a healthy family structure, a healthy family life, and at the same time, there is to be a healthy spiritual life, regular participation in worship and spiritual uh, seeking of God in one's life, and the worship of God in family affairs, they always go together. That contributes to a healthy whole family life and a healthy and whole individual from God's perspective as well. Verse 4, he goes on to say, Do not turn to idols, nor make for yourselves molded images, for I am the Lord your God. So again, very reflective of the Ten Commandments right off the bat there and making no other God and having no other God before the Lord our God. So here in verse 4, he tells them that they were not to transfer. And, and I emphasize that word transfer. They were not to transfer their devotion 
and their dedication and their allegiance that belongs strictly to Yahweh God as their one true and living God, the God who redeemed them, the God who saved them, the God who led them through the wilderness. They were not to transfer that complete dedication and devotion and worship to him and transfer that to anything or to anyone else. He says here, notice, do not turn to idols. And what's an idol? Well, very simply put, an idol is really anything or anyone that we give attention or allegiance or worship to other than God. That's an idol. You know, First John tells us at the end of his letter, John, this uh, elderly apostle at the end of his life, he's, one of his last statements where he signs off is he says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Uh, and it's just an admonition that we all need to be reminded of in regards to practical holiness of living a holy life out before the Lord, th that we are, are by nature prone at times to set up things in our lives that we begin to transfer more dedication to, more devotion to, more attention to, more commitment to, other than God himself. And anything or anyone, for that matter, can become an idol. And there are times in our lives where we need to realize, like that old song used to say, you know, idols in high places, tear them down. And sometimes we need to realize, man, this has become an idolatrous thing in my life. It is beginning to usurp the place of God's role in my life where I'm giving more devotion and dedication to it than I should and I began to turn myself to an idol and God says don't do that nor make for yourself molded images for I am he says the Lord your God in verse 5 if you offer a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord Notice, you shall offer it of your own free will. Now, remember, the peace offering was that offering whereby they would come and a portion of the sacrificial meat uh, was given to the priest. A portion of it was burned there upon the altar. And then another portion of it, the worshiper, you, the one who brought the peace offering, would sit there and eat uh, together with, for example, your family or maybe some friends and individuals that you came to bring with you to celebrate this peace offering. But it was an offering of fellowship. It was an offering of communion. The idea is I just want to spend time with God. In the same way you might invite someone over for dinner or have a few friends over and the whole purpose of that revolves around fellowship and relationship. You want to just enjoy each other's company. You want to be in each other's presence. This was the idea of the peace offering. It was an offering that could be presented to God, uh, not necessarily because you were asking forgiveness for a sin as the trespass or sin offering, or not because you were trying to dedicate yourself to God or like, like make consecration as the, the burnt offering was. This was just, I just want to spend time with the Lord. I just want to be in his presence and fellowship with God. It was sort of a, a holy barbecue in a sense where a portion of the meat was given to the priest who was attending the sacrifice as well as just burned on the altar to God and for you and your friends that we would fellowship together. And the idea was just spending time in God's presence, communion, fellowship with him enjoying that peaceful harmony of relationship that God offered. And he says that when you offer the peace offering, you shall offer it of your own free will. Notice, this was not a, this was not a mandatory offering. It wasn't a required, obligatory thing. God wanted fellowship with him, notice, to be willing and voluntary. He wanted it to be something where they did it because they desired to be in his presence, that it wasn't, wasn't compulsory, it, it wasn't uh, that they would be there with a sense of reluctancy, they feel obligated to, to, to be in God's presence, but they're not really interested. Uh, and, and again, I think this is a great reminder because, let me just say this, as we go through these laws that we're looking at here, and I realize that some of them, uh, they were laws that God established for Israel that were a part of the congregation of Israel in the Old Testament times. And we're not under the law, we're under grace. Christ fulfilled the law, we understand these things. Uh, so sometimes it's difficult to make application in our present day culture and maybe to our lives. But please realize these laws represent very clearly the nature of God. 
So as you go through these things and we're studying them, I think it's important that though we may look at it and say, okay, that doesn't directly apply to me in the sense that I must submit to that or comply to that particular law or regulation as it was established for ancient Israel in the time of the Old Testament. But nonetheless, that law that God gave, it certainly reflects the character of God. It shows us something about God's attributes and God's nature. So I can look at these things and say, okay, this shows me what matters to God what God deems important, what pleases God and what displeases God. And, and, and it reveals a lot about the heart of God. And here we see, notice, that, that the Lord desires that relationship, communion and fellowship with him not be something that's compulsory, where we feel obligated and, and we're doing it, but we're reluctant. You know, I gotta have my, I just gotta have my devotions. Yeah, it, it, Lord, the Lord wants our attention. He wants fellowship. Listen, you know, I, I have a relationship with a, with a spouse and, and, and you know, who, who wants to be in a relationship with someone where you feel like you can get that sense that they're spending time with you out of pity or because they, they feel obligated, they have to be. I mean, anybody can pick up on that kind of thing or if you're with a friend and it's kind of like, you know, they're not saying it out loud, but you can almost sense it's like, are you ready to leave yet? You know, that, that kind of a sense where you can tell that, that they don't really want to be spending time. They're entertaining you out of courtesy, but they really don't want uh, to be enjoying the experience that you start at the moment and, and, and that's tragic when you feel that and God's saying well I don't want that either when you come I want you to come because you want to be in my presence I want your heart to be in it I want you to willingly want to spend time with you again remember Jesus spoke of how it is possible to worship in vain he even said uh, he said these people honor me with their lips remember he quoted Isaiah they honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me. And he said, in vain do they worship me. Now that's, that's somewhat sobering to me that God says it's possible to just go through the motions in a sense. And God says, look, I'd, I'd rather not. I want your heart to be in it. I want it to be because you want to, that you enjoy being in my presence. And he says, if you're going to bring a peace offering, you're not required or obligated. He says, do it of your own free will. Come because you desire to and you're interested in. And then he sets this interesting connection to this. He says, verse 6, And it shall be eaten, that is the, the peace offering, the same day you offer it and on the next day. So you could partake of that food that was offered in the peace offering the day you presented it. And also the next day you could still participate of that same meat, partake of it. And if any remains, however, to the third day, then it shall be burned with fire. That is disposed of rather than eaten. And if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an abomination, God says. It shall not be accepted. Therefore, everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity. So it actually became wrong to partake of it after two days, the meat, because he has profaned the hallowed offering of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. Now, whether that statement there cut off, and we have to be careful, sometimes it can refer to just excommunication from the, you know, the benefits and the experience of the congregation of Israel. There are other times that terms used cut off. Uh, we'll see in chapter 20 where it seems to be indicating the actual death process. But a rather uh, strong admonition, God says here, that you can eat it the first or the second day, but the meat was not to be eaten on the third day. It was to be discarded and disposed of, no doubt, first of all, for health reasons. And he says, and everyone who does it actually begins to commit iniquity and they've profaned the offering of the Lord and they shall be cut off. Now we look at this and, and, and I question maybe why not eat the meat anymore after two days? Certainly there's an aspect of what's sanitary and hygienic uh, and, and, and you know again depending upon if you're you know, a man or a woman, you have different convictions, how long something stays in the refrigerator and all that kind of thing. Oh, that's, you know, that's only been in there seven weeks. I mean, it's, it's good pizza still. I mean, it's, you know, and everybody's got a little different. Why not after two days? Well, perhaps what the Lord is trying to indicate here, and this is just a stab here, perhaps he wants to prevent the worshiper from attaching, if you would, any mysterious or spiritual virtue superstitiously to the meat itself that was offered in such a way by after participating in the in the sacrifice and realizing this is a holy special time with God and they partake of the meal the first day and the second day that then there's almost this like we can't throw out the leftovers this is holy meat 
And, and almost this superstitious attachment that somehow there's this spiritual virtue now in the piece of beef itself where it almost becomes revered like it's some type of a a relic or something of that nature in the same way that you know again people have different convictions in regards to if you celebrate communion and the elements of communion that afterwards well, what do you do if you have a few extra crackers in cups that are still filled after you've celebrated communion i mean uh, is that sacrilege to throw it away i mean and and and, and again people have different convictions in regards to this, and perhaps what god was doing was trying to just prevent some superstitious, again, kind of perspective whereby that meat had some more spiritual value and it became revered in some way more than what it was attended to and, and, and the, the mind went beyond where it was supposed to. So God says, look, we'll just eliminate that. After the second day, th that's it. You know, Don't begin to treat the meat like it's some kind of relic to be worshipped or idolized or revered. And I think maybe too it also pictures how God did not want them depending upon leftovers, if you would, in their worship experience with God. Uh, that he didn't want them offering to him their leftover sacrifices of worship from you know, three days ago, six days ago, and saying, God, well, well that's, I'm just going to eat the leftovers of my worship. And God says, no, listen, I want a fresh worship experience. I want you to stay current with me. I don't want you to give to me leftovers from the last worship experience. I want a fresh and current worship experience, not you know, participating in things that, that you're trying to live off the fumes of the last worship experience. God says, no, I want something current and regular and routine, and perhaps he was safeguarding against that. Verse 9, he then goes on to say, And when you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not wholly reap the corners of your field. The idea is that they were to go through, but they weren't to overextend themselves to try and get every little nook and cranny, every corner of their field when they were reaping. Nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather, notice, every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them instead, here's the point, for the poor and the stranger that is the foreigner in the land, for again, I am the Lord your God. So here in verse 9 and 10, God establishes, notice here, if you would, sort of compassionately a means of caring for the poor and the needy in the land of Israel. If you would, this is almost the ancient system of welfare that God established to provide for those who were less fortunate, uh, for the orphan, for the widow, uh, for those who were poor and less fortunate in the land. Uh, God tells those who were landowners that they were only to glean their fields and their vineyards one time through they were to take one pass they weren't to go through and then to go back and say hey we didn't quite get that northwest corner there's still a little small section so let's go back and really exhaust you know every area and you know beat every bush and try and get every single possible grape out of every vineyard and every thing god says no look go through one time be thankful Take what's been provided for you. Again, God was the provider of all things anyway. He could bless their crop or bless their vineyards or uh, he could retract his blessing from their vineyards and their fields. So God says, take one pass through, gather what you need. But God asked them, don't, don't take it all. He says, just you know, leave a remnant, the corners, leave a portion, some small remnant there. And God said there's a purpose for that, and it was a way to establish a very gracious, helpful way to care for the poor and the needy in the land. Now, not only was this gracious and compassionate that God provided the means to help support the poor and the less fortunate in the land, but on top of it, it's an extremely dignified way that God goes about doing this. And please take note, as God establishes, if you would, his system of welfare to care for the poor and the needy, notice that they were to glean the land, they were to leave a small remnant, so that the poor and the needy, it says here in our text, that they could then go back through after a field was gleaned, and they could then go through and partake of whatever was left and take a pass through after the landowner had. 
Now, I say this is a very dignified way of doing this because take note, the landowner and his workers, they didn't glean the entire field and then God said, okay, now I want you to take 10% of that and I want you to do all the work to pick it all off and I want you to put it in baskets and then I want you to bring it and I want you to set it out on tables and, and then tell everybody to come and partake of whatever they want and have it ready for them and just hand it over to them. What did God do? God created a dignified way whereby those who are poor and needy actually had to come and pick it themselves, correct? That's what's going on here. They had to actually go out into the fields just like the gleaners and the reapers and everyone else and go and partake of what had been left of a remnant for them. So they had to participate in some form of work themselves to actually partake and receive provision for themselves as everyone else in the culture of Israel was as well. And I can't help but to think to myself, what a really wise way of doing that. Rather than just having it provided and set there for them and given to them, God created a dignified way whereby they could go out and labor themselves and partake of what they needed as well. It was provided, but they had to participate in some level of, of labor and work also, which gave them, no doubt, a tremendous sense of self-worth that they did something themselves. It gave them a sense of dignity. It gave them a sense of certainly appreciation for what they were receiving because they actually labored for it themselves in some capacity like others had done that were partaking of that same food. And I think it also certainly protected from a sense of an attitude of entitlement whereby a person just begins to develop wrongly an attitude of entitlement of, hey, this is just how it works because I'm in condition, in this condition, you provide, you supply, and I just come pick it up. And that can become a very unhealthy thing. And I just say that because when I look at a modern form of how we do a lot of you know, social help and welfare in our American culture at least, I think that maybe sometimes we're a little out of balance in this area. Again, listen, I understand there's nothing wrong with helping out the less fortunate. I'm not trying to be discriminatory towards that. And there are those maybe who are physically disabled. They're, they're handicapped. God's going to speak about that in the next couple of verses to show that he's caring and concerned about the handicapped. And there are those who maybe physically cannot do something. And I understand that. But there are a lot of people who can do something and are at least able to do something. And I think it may do a whole lot for people's self-worth and dignity and to, to diminish a lot of an attitude of entitlement and lack of appreciation, if maybe God's system was really given a second thought, that's not a bad idea, that they actually went out and gleaned of the same field that was set there for them. Remember, this is what uh, Ruth partakes of in the book of Ruth in Boaz's field. You see that in action if you read the book of Ruth uh, a few books ahead here in the Old Testament where she goes through and gleans in the field of Boaz. So we go on here, verse 11, God says as well, the next thing instru instructing, he says, you shall not steal nor deal falsely nor lie to one another. Again, God doesn't steal, so God says, I don't steal and you represent me, so don't steal from people. God says, I don't lie. I always say the truth. So I'm an honest and truthful God. So as my people, uh, be truthful. Don't lie to one another. Verse 12, nor shall you swear falsely by my name, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. So again, not, not bearing false witness, not swearing falsely by God's name. In other words, where you get into a situation, you say, I swear to God, man, I swear to God, I'll do it. I, I, I swear to God. And, and, or, or look, man, I, I, I promise, you know, uh, I, the, the, I promise on the Lord that I'm going to do this. I'm going to follow through. I'm going to take care of that. And, and then you never do. And God says, and then you, wh why do you bring my name into that? Leave my name out of it, God says. Leave my name out of it. Keep my reputation out of that. Well, I mean, I'm a Christian, man. I will. I, I'll come through. I, hey, I, I promise I'm going to do this or I'm going to give you that deal or I'm going to take care of this and, and I'm a Christian, so that's why you should hire me or whatever. And God says, will you stop putting my label on everything? Don't do that. My reputation's at stake. So God says, don't attach my name to things that you shouldn't. And tragically, that happens way too often. And then people get very turned off uh, because God's name is brought into things and then his reputation and his nature isn't upheld. He says, verse 13, and you shall not cheat your neighbor. Isn't it funny that God has to tell us these things? You shall not cheat your neighbor, 
nor rob him. The wages of him who was hired, you shall not remain with you all night till morning. So again, if you had a day labor and you made an arrangement to pay you know, $30 a day or $60 a day, there were day laborers in that culture. They depended upon that money. So God's saying, be fair in your, in your business dealings. If you promise to pay somebody a fair wage, pay them a fair wage. Don't go and say, well, I, you know, I, don't, I, I don't have the money now. Or Again, I, God says, no, if somebody has done work, and, and you owe them wages for the work they've done, then God says, pay them what you owe them. Give them a fair wage. Again, God is always fair in his dealings, and here God is reminding us that he wants us to treat one another with proper respect. To just have respect for one another and the way that we interact in our dealings among humanity. We're not to take advantage of people, and we're to do such because God's reputation is at stake and because God cares about people. Uh, and he wants us to treat them in the way that he would treat them as well. Verse 14, isn't this interesting that God actually says this? Look at it now. You shall not curse the deaf, nor shall you put a stumbling block before the blind. God says, for you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. So here God says, look, in relation to those who are maybe dealing with some disability, a person who's deaf, God says, you know, don't, don't say things that are, are hurtful or wrong to a person who's unable to hear it. Don't, don't set some kind of a stumbling block before someone who can't see it, a blind person. What God's saying here is he's instructing they were not to take advantage of or to mistreat Anyone who was in a, uh, a physical disability that they weren't to take advantage or exploit that. And isn't it that sad that God actually knows our hearts that we would do that? That there are people who would exploit somebody who has a physical limitation and would actually try and capitalize on that in some way to get by on them, to put something in the way of a blind person they couldn't see, or to take advantage of a person who can't hear. And, and they were to, out of fear of God, God says, look, but instead you shall fear the Lord your God. In other words, you should realize, look, I created that person. And I care about that person. And it's not just what you're doing to them. God says you should realize that you would be accountable to me in any way that you treat someone else. Verse 15, he then goes on to say, and you shall do no injustice in judgment. So again, practical holiness in the way that we make judgments about situations. You shall not be partial, he says, to the poor, interesting, nor shall you honor the person of the mighty, that is, you know, the person who's rich or uh, famous or powerful, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. So here in verse 15, God speaks of how we are noticed to make righteous judgments in the way that we treat everyone and the way that we interact with people. Uh, the Bible tells us that God shows no partiality. So God says here two things, that they were not in any way, he says, first of all, to be partial to the poor. In other words, they weren't to give, isn't that interesting, special exceptions. They weren't to give partiality to a person who was poor because of undue sympathy. Maybe that person is legitimately guilty. Maybe they've done something wrong. God says you are not to let undue sympathy in your heart make you then give somebody a special exception and preferential treatment just because you feel bad for them in undue sympathy. And, and that's something that we can do at times where we think, man, this person's already down and out or they already got a tough situation or having a hard home life or, I mean, so, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll bend the rule for them a little bit. I'll give them a little, a little extension. No, God says, listen, if they're guilty, they're guilty. In undue sympathy, you don't bend the rules for them. And he says, on the other side of that, you don't honor the person of the mighty. In the same way, God says, we're not to offer favoritism or special or preferential treatment to someone just because they're rich or important or, or powerful or famous. God says, no, we are to simply make righteous decisions and deal with everyone equally and fairly in the same way that God deals with people equally and fairly. 
God has a standard and he holds that standard. And if a person has done something that they're guilty, then God holds them as guilty for it. And, and God deals with people fairly and righteously. And we should do the same. And we have to be careful of this because we can very easily be swayed in both directions to make that kind of mistake where we give special preferential treatment to someone who's rich or influential or, or powerful or important. And, and we, so we, we grant, a, and God says, don't do that. That's, that. that's not appropriate. And in the same way, God says, don't have undue sympathy and have pity on someone. And in a sense, coddle wrong behavior. And see, sometimes that can happen. You know, with the young people that we're ministering to on Friday evenings at the school there in Atlantic City. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to coddle wrong behavior. Maybe you do got a bad home life, but the rule is the rule. And if you can't obey the rule that everybody else here is obeying, you're not getting a special exception just because you got a bad home. I'm not going to coddle your disobedience. I'm not going to give you special preferential treatment in some way just because... No, there's a standard. And, and we, we have to be careful that we are righteous in our dealings with one another. God is righteous and fair with us, and therefore we want to be careful to not show partiality in that same way. God says, in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a tail-bearer. Uh, and again, a tail-bearer is somebody who's got a tail, and they go around bearing it to everyone. They just they hear a tail, rumor, gossip, you know, and, and they just have to go around sharing it with everyone. Nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord your God. So God says avoid gossip and sharing things that are just hurtful and destructive. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely notice, however, rebuke your neighbor and not bear the sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. Now, take note. I think this is really important here. God's dealing with practical holiness. And again, notice how it applies to relationships. And now God comes to this place in verse 17 and 18 when periodic issues happen uh, and and when insults happen or offenses happen or somebody gets hurt there's misunderstanding and and these things are going to happen periodically they happen in every society they happen in every family they happen in every relationship they happen in every congregation god says when periodic issues arise insults offenses god says in verse 17 and 18 please take note they are to be addressed directly they're to be addressed they're not to be ignored they're not going to be just pushed under the carpet and well there's an issue but i don't want to deal with it because i'm not a confrontational person I don't like confrontation. It gets tense. I, I don't like that. So I'm just going to act like it didn't happen and I'm not going to talk about it for a time because eventually you'll talk about it. You'll just start talking about it to the wrong people and then that will just create all the backlash and problematic things that were never supposed to happen if you would have just addressed it directly. And a lot of times immediately and, and, and directly where the situation arose from. And so God says, listen, you're not to hate your brother. And it is interesting. I mean, th we can begin to do that. He says, verse 18, you're not to take vengeance. That is, you begin to treat someone in a retaliatory way. So you begin to treat them nasty or mean or you begin to retaliate in the way you respond to them in some way to whatever measure. Why? He says, nor verse 18, bear any grudge. You begin to nurse a grudge in your heart because you felt insulted or I felt hurt or offended or some issue arose that, that took place. And God says, look, when that happens, it has to be addressed directly. He says, there is a time even in love to, to go and reprove someone, to talk about it, to bring up the issue, to discuss the, the insult, to address what happened in some way. Why? Because it avoids, the Bible showing us here, relational hatred and nursing of grudges, uh, and retaliation in the way that we treat people, which results in, and please hear the word, sin. Because look at verse 17. He says, he says verse 17, you shall not bear sin because of him. Wait a minute, they insulted me. They hurt my feelings. 
They weren't fair in the way they treated me or they offended me. Or, or, and, and, but yet God says, but now you are the one bearing sin. Why are you the one bearing sin? Because God says you never addressed it directly. So you started nursing a grudge and acted in retaliatory ways and you begin to develop hatred and animosity in your heart. And God says, so now you're in sin because of it. You're the one that's in sin because of it. Here's the thing. There's not a need, please hear me, because this is so critical and such a problem in the body of Christ, even in the church. There is not a need to become confrontational when offenses happen. There's not a need to get confrontational when tension results in a relationship because of a misunderstanding or misperception or something was said or not said or, or not done or done. It doesn't have to become confrontational. It really does not. But what does need to happen is it has to be confronted. It doesn't have to be confrontational, but it does have to be confronted. And it has to be communicated about. It doesn't have to be confrontational. Well, I just don't like confrontation, so that's why I never talk about stuff. Well, listen, if you're going to take that perspective, you're going to have to disobey the word of God. Because very clearly, what did Jesus say? If your brother offends you, if your brother sins against you, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, go to that person, and between you and him alone, tell them their offense. Why? Because number one, maybe they don't even realize they've done anything to hurt you. Listen, it is very legitimately possible at times to insult someone, to offend someone, to hurt someone, uh, to do something, and you sincerely do not even realize that you've done it. Now, I know there are times when it's, you know, you, a person clearly knows they've done something mean or hurtful. But we're sensitive people, man. And, and, and we read into things and we're over... And, and there are times where people get hurt, offended, insulted or whatever, and the, the party who did it does not even realize they did it. I think that's why Jesus said, listen, when you're hurt, when they sin against you, you need to go and tell them. Well, when they come and say sorry to me, when they realize what they did to me, so I'm going to nurse a grudge and have hatred in my heart and be retaliatory in the way I treat them and tell everybody else about it until they figure out what they've done so they come and repent to me. And Jesus says, no, 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 wait. I want you to go to them. You're the one to be proactive. See, that's the way the world does things. Again, we don't do things the way the world does them. We do things the righteous way. Jesus says, you go to the person. Address it. And whether they need to hear about it for the first time, or maybe they do know about it, you are still responsible before God to go to them and to address it and to say, look, this, you know, this kind of hurt me. I confused me. I, and, and to bring up the issue to try and work towards resolution. Now, wait a minute. Matthew chapter 5 puts us responsible on the other side too because Matthew chapter 5 also says this. If you go to the altar and you realize that your brother has something against you, and now you know this person's nursing a grudge against me, they hate me, they're retaliatory, or I, or I know that I have hurt them because I, I know I did, I know I said some things I shouldn't, and you know, but you, you don't want to deal with it, and they're not dealing with it, they're not doing their part, then Jesus says, you might as well leave your gift at the altar, stop worshiping God, go be reconciled to your brother, and then come back and worship God. So see, G Jesus gets us on both sides. It is our responsibility when we're hurt or offended to go and to address it and, and, and to ask the person if we can talk about it and work through it and to see if they would want to apologize and to express and to not hold on to that where it becomes a nursing a grudge and hatred and we're to address it. By the same token, if we also know somebody has something against us and we clearly sense it or it's obvious or we know we've hurt and we haven't addressed something, then Jesus also says that before we are in right worship with God, we need, we need to go work on those things. That's important. Why? Because God cares about people. And see, here's, here's the kicker, gang. That is love in its supreme form. Why? Because God's a God of reconciliation. Start at the beginning of the Bible. What happened? We offended God. We broke relationship with God. And what did God do from moment one? He started a process of reconciliation. And he was pretty dedicated to it. I'll go so far as to say he even made some pretty major personal sacrifices, even humbling himself in the process 
to do what he could to produce reconciliation. Look in verse 18, what he says at the end there. He says, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, by not nursing the grudge and having the hatred and the retaliation, but addressing it directly and maybe going and rebuking or reproving someone and making a good effort to try and resolve something, sacrificing comfort to esteem relationships, value, God says, that's showing love. Instead of staying in sin because of the issue, God says, that is showing love. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. The Bible tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Remember, Jesus said this is the second of the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's not saying you got to love yourself to be able to love your neighbor. He's saying love your neighbor and give as much attention and care to your neighbor as you already do to yourself because we all love ourselves. So he's saying the same attention you put upon your own needs and your own concerns to make sure you're okay and you're comfortable, he says, put that much effort into trying to love someone else. And certainly interesting, it comes up in this context of resolving things when issues arise. So again, I just strongly, again, the heart of God here, the heart of God is clearly revealed to us in his word and the New Testament has much teaching in relation to these same things. Now that I've sermoned there forever, we should need to move on. Verse 19, you shall keep my commandments or my statutes, excuse me, and you shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. So the interbreeding of animals here, you shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. So here God mentions the intermingling of animals or seeds or different types of cloths and appears that various forms of intermingling, uh, if you read out some of the uh, description of these things, would cause weakness and complications. If you sew together, apparently, I'm told, you know, linen and wool, different types of cloth, that the stitch line is a lot weaker there because it's two different types of material and it pulls apart and it causes complications in the garment. In the same way that sowing too much seed of different types in the same field, it, it weakens the soil, it causes complication for growth and so forth. So here it seems that God's speaking of forms of intermingling that cause weakness and complication. Now what exactly is meant behind this? Perhaps God is just indicating in a principal sense that it is best at times that some things do remain separate and aren't intermixed. Some things are better left separate and not intermingled in their functions because sometimes intermingling doesn't always work out the best. Sometimes intermixing of certain things that should just be left separate can cause complications as a result rather than something beneficial. Verse 20, God says, whoever lies carnally with a woman who's betrothed to a man as a concubine and who has not at all been redeemed nor given her freedom for this there shall be scourging, but they shall not be put to death because she was fr not free. The idea is that she wasn't a free woman. She's a, a slave uh, at this time. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. A ram as a trespass offering and the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering before the Lord for his sin which he has committed and the sin which he has committed shall be forgiven him. So here God is dealing with a situation where a man has some type of a sexual relationship with a slave girl. She was not free. She wasn't a wife at this point. She's in the position of being a slave culturally and he has sexual relations with her, whether it was consensual or whether he took advantage of her, that's not told to us. But either way, since she's still a slave and not a free woman or married, uh, there's not the death sentence enforced here, as we'll see is the result in chapter 20 when there's adultery and so forth, but there was still a punishment. There was still a price to be paid for that sexual inappropriate experience. They were to be scourged. The man, notice, was responsible to bring a trespass offering. There was still, in a sense, punishment and a price to be paid for the inappropriate sexual relationship that had taken place. And I think it's just a good reminder from the heart of God that sexual sin in any form Sexual sin in any form always brings personal suffering to everybody involved. 
It always causes problems. There's loss and there's pain, as was seen in this particular situation in the society. Verse 23, God says, And when you come into the land and have planted all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as uncircumcised. The idea is, is unusable at that point. Three years it shall be uncircumcised to you, and it shall not be eaten for the first three years. But on the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, a praise to the Lord. And in the fifth year, then you may eat its fruit, that it may yield to you its increase. I am the Lord your God. So God gives instruction here, verse 23 to 25, that when they came into the land and they began to plant their fruit trees, God says that they were to give some time for that tree to start producing full or mature fruit. A lot of times when a new fruit tree is planted, the first few years, uh, it produces gnarled, small pieces of fruit that aren't full, mature fruit the way they would typically ultimately become. So there, there's uh, wisdom at times in, in pruning it off the first First few years, not partaking of it, letting that fruit just fall to the ground and fertilize the soil around it so that ultimately it will yield a better crop down the road. So here God, in a sense, says, give that tree that you've planted some time to start producing full size fruit. In other words, be patient and give what you have planted some time to mature. God says, give it three years. And then in the fourth year, at that point, then give a dedication offering to the Lord, the first fruits. And then in the fifth year, he says, you can then partake of it as benefit for yourself. In other words, God's establishing a principle of not expecting too much prematurely. God says, give it time. Give it time to mature. Don't expect too much prematurely. And certainly if God were to give that advice for plants, I think that's really good advice for people. <laughs> that sometimes when the Lord plants something new spiritually, we need to just, we need to give time. And let there be a little bit of time for some fruit to develop. And don't expect too much too prematurely. Uh, just let it develop and let God work the seed in time and work in, in a gradual process. Uh, verse 26, he says, And you shall not eat anything with blood. Again, we've talked much about that. And this was something the pagans would do, unfortunately in their practices, nor shall you practice divination nor, or soothsaying. So here God gives a prohibition against things like seances and witchcraft and consulting wizards and sorcery. Soothsaying would be things like fortune telling and horoscopes. And notice these things were forbidden. God says you're not to involve yourself with these things. You're to live holy. I don't consult, uh, you know, uh, other spirits, so I don't want you consulting other spirits, God says, you know, uh, witchcraft and sorcery and horoscopes and, you know, looking to the stars for direction. He says, verse 27, you shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead nor tattoo any marks on you, I am the Lord. So again, notice these things, verse 26 to 28, they are in context of pagan practices that the Canaanite people would perform as a result of what we would call necromancy, fascination with the dead, or mourning of the dead, or trying to be in contact with people from the dead spirits. And as a result of that, there were practices that went along with it. They would cut their hair in certain ways as part of their ritualistic practices. God mentions here that they would make cuttings in their flesh, the idea of bloodletting, where they would actually, as a form of mourning for the dead, the idea is to show their great grief and pain. They would actually put cuttings in themselves. Remember in his... Um, First uh, Kings chapter 18, where Elijah the prophet is challenging the prophets of Baal and they're calling upon Baal and calling upon Baal and he's not responding. So what do they start to do? It says they actually start to cut themselves in their flesh. And the idea of this cutting of the flesh and putting markings or tattoos on the body, these were all practices associated with the worship of the dead. These were all practices that were involved in trying to gain the attention of of, of their gods to arouse the spirits of the dead in a sense. So they would do these things 
in conjunction with that. So again, we see the origin of some of these things, you know, cutting and marking their bodies, and these were all tied together with ways of trying to get attention of the spirits or the gods as a part of their worship of the dead, the origin of these things. Now listen, you get this one place in the Bible here where tattoos come up. I would just caution you, be careful of building a whole theology on tattoos from the Bible in relation to a simple verse here that states some of the origin of where these things came from. Is it right to get tattoos? That's between you and the Lord. Uh, you see here the word of God, the relation of where these things were. I, my simple advice would you be this, this in relation to tattoos. Just remember they're really permanent. <laughs> they last a long time. So once you do, uh, just be aware. I know lots of people who love Jesus and they got tattoos. And I know lots of people who don't have a tattoo on their body and they are the most scoundrel, rotten people on planet Earth. Uh, so again, we see the origin of these things. There are those who want to take verses and torture texts and make more of them what they are. Uh, simply stated, we see it here in the Word of God and the origin of where those things came from. Verse 29, do not prostitute your daughter, which again, how would someone even consider that? But do not prostitute your daughter. These were things that pagans did to appease their gods, to cause her to be a harlot, lest the land fall into idolatry, or harlotry, excuse me, and the land become full of wickedness. So again, prostituting their daughter for purposes of harlotry, for their what? Their own enrichment, their own selfish benefit to appease their gods, to experience personal benefit. And again, here's the heart of God saying, listen, a parent, I, can say, I would never do that. But here's the heart of God saying a parent should never selfishly subject their children to something that is going to harm them so they can get some kind of personal benefit. And let's be very candid. There are a lot of parents who subject their children to hurtful, harmful, destructive things in their lives for their own personal advantage or benefit. And here God says, don't do that. It's something not consistent with my heart. He says, verse 30, you shall keep my Sabbaths. I'm going to try and finish up the chapter here. I'm going a little beyond where we typically do, but I want to just tie up the chapter. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord your God. Give no regard, God says, to mediums. And familiar spirits, again, channeling uh, spirits. Uh, you know, why? Because these things are real. Opening yourself up to demonic realms and you know, fortune tellers and psychics and these kind of things. God says, do not seek after them to be defiled by them. That's what happens. A life, a, a person's soul and spirit literally becomes defiled because these are legitimate forces. Evil powers, demonic and unclean things. God says stay away from mediums and you know, psychics and those who are channeling spirits. For I am the Lord your God. Verse 32, some of you will like this. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man. And fear your God, for I am the Lord. So again, God in great wisdom, God says in the same way I care and I'm concerned about proper treatment of children, God says I also believe that there should be respect for the elderly. That a culture should learn to respect the older generation. And again, can I just say that is critical to a healthy, youthful generation to have proper respect for authority, to have proper respect for those who are older than them and to reverence them and to honor them and to realize, listen, we owe what we now have to them in this generation. And something really tragic begins to deteriorate in a generation of young people when they fail to appreciate and honor the elderly in the land. Where in the same way, listen, in the same way it is tragic when people say, oh, it's so tragic that people are just disregarding the value of babies and they're, and they're discarding of children. And yet in the same way, it seems there's a growing vibe, even in our American culture, to want to discard of and do away with the elderly. And in the same way to say, hey, in the same way an unborn baby has no value, in the same way when a person gets beyond a certain stage, they no longer have any value or importance. 
So they're disregarded and disrespected, and God says, don't do that. They have great value. They are the pillars in the society and a nation. They should be honored rightly because of it. Verse 33, and if a stranger dwells with you in your land, that is a foreigner, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be as one born among you. You shall love him as yourself. For God says, you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And God says, I treated you fairly when you were in a strange and foreign place as well. You shall do no injustice, verse 35, in judgment, in your measurements of length, in weight or volume. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, an honest ephah, and an honest hin, for I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So again, in their business dealings. At times, God says, as you would measure things out, God says, be honest in your business practices. Your practical holiness should affect your business life, your business dealings. Sometimes they would, in the marketplace, have one set of weights when they would buy and have another set of weights when they would sell so that they could try and take advantage of people in their business practices. And God says, no, listen, holiness. You're to live different. You're to be different in the way that you do business. You do business with integrity. You do business with honesty, not just for your own personal advantage, but you do business with ethics and integrity to represent me and to honor me even in those things. Verse 37, he says, and therefore you shall observe, notice, all my statutes and my judgments and perform them again, for I am the Lord your God. So again, God calling us to observe, notice, not the statutes of the world, but to observe his statutes, his judgments, and to perform them in obedience.